But because this is everywhere today, you know, the 6% having a biblical worldview, 88% having a hodgepodge of ideas that come back to secularism, that 88% means we're surrounded by it absolutely everywhere. And so that can make it very compelling to us. We start thinking, well, I'm maybe I'm wrong. If I'm in this tiny minority of people, we are inclined to think that we're wrong about something. It's just kind of our human nature, right? If we're the only people we think think something, then maybe we've really missed the boat somewhere. Well, I think the goal of every Christian should be to believe, think, and live biblically, meaning that your beliefs match what is taught in Scripture, that you think the thoughts that you should think according to a Christian worldview, and then your faith is that reflecting of Jesus Christ, our Savior and our model for life, and trying to live as He lived or reflect the way He was generous and loving and compassionate and reflecting the way that Scripture has called us to live. Unfortunately, there are ideas and worldviews in our culture that often deceive us that maybe take us down a different route or make us start to believe and think things that are not actually consistent with scripture. And so the goal of our conversation today is to help you see, understand those worldview ideas and culture that are influencing us and shaping the way that we think, and then trying to give you a practical game plan for how to regain biblical clarity, to believe, think, and live biblically. So that is going to be the conversation today, and I hope it's a fun one for you to really kind of think through and to be a more faithful follower of Christ in this cultural moment. My name is Ryan Pauley. This is Think Well, the show that is geared to help you think well about Christianity, a culture, and then engage the culture well. And my guest today is Natasha Crane. She is an author, a blogger, a speaker, has written great books like Keeping Your Kids on God's Side, Talking With Your Kids About Jesus, Talking With Your Kids About God. And now this new book, Faithfully Different, Regaining Biblical Clarity in a Secular Culture. So Natasha, thanks for coming on and joining me today. Hey, it's great to talk to you. Thanks for having me. Absolutely. This is uh, the second time that you've come on. I think the last time was on your book, Talking With Your Kids About Jesus. And so I uh, just have uh, so grateful for the privilege of being able to have another conversation with you and be able to kind of talk through kind of these worldview influences. Because as we were just chatting about before we went live, this is so much about what my ministry of Think Well is focused on, of trying to get students and, and Christians to think well, to then engage these cultural ideas well. And so kind of curious, as you really, uh, at the beginning part of maybe your author career, focused really on kind of the parenting side, writing books to help parents train their children in a biblical worldview. You've kind of taken this a little bit more general in this book. So kind of walk through maybe kind of the story in the background of kind of what led to you writing this book and kind of why you think this book is necessary at this time. Yeah, well, you're right. So I had spent several years writing specifically in the parenting lane, just trying to equip parents so that they could equip their kids with an understanding of apologetics. But as time went on, 2020 hit, and it changed a lot for me in the way that I was thinking about things, some of the problems that I was seeing, just like for everyone else, 2020 was a big turning point, right? And so that year, when we started to see a lot of the social justice movements in particular spring up, I started to see that a lot of Christians were letting some very secular ideas come 
into what would otherwise be a biblical worldview. And so I decided to do something very rare for me. In fact, I think it was the first time that I had done that. I stepped outside of that parenting lane that I had focused so much on, and I decided to just write a blog post that was really focused on ways that Christians were getting swept up into a secular culture at that cultural moment. So got away from the parenting. I thought, oh, I don't know if anyone's going to care what I have to say about this. But anyway, (laughs) I posted this article and it went viral. It was the biggest article that I had ever written. It was liked and shared tens of thousands of times. And so I realized, well, this is something that is really hitting for people right now. There are a lot of people who are feeling the burden of what's going on and want some clarity around that. And so then I started writing more articles around that kind of vein, similar cultural vein. And these were just some of the most popular articles that I had ever written. And so I realized there was this need to write more on how we can regain biblical clarity in a secular culture, not just on social justice, but on so many other topics as well. And so that's what eventually became this book, Faithfully Different. Wonderful. Yeah. And so, um, you know, uh, you, you kind of start off and I think you, you were a little bit, uh, um, modest there as, as you kind of said tens of thousands of times, I think in your book, you mentioned it was shared like 277,000 times, which is huge and really does show that this is something that people are really trying to figure out and really kind of hits on that, that need. Um, and so kind of, as you kind of start in the beginning of the book, kind of laying out some of the details, why is this important? Kind of what, what is kind of the current state of Christians and living out a biblical worldview that we're seeing in those, in the, in the data and the, the surveys that are being done? Yeah, well, I'm a big stats person. I have an MBA in marketing statistics, so I love the data. Not everyone loves the data, so I'm going to just give a bottom line on it here. And if anyone's interested in more of the data behind that, you can go to the book. But I discovered a couple of very important statistics in the research for this. Number one, I'm going to give you two stats. That's it. Number one is that about 65% of people in America identify as Christians. So if the Pew Forum, major research organization, if they call you up to find out how do you identify yourself and give you a list of things, atheist, agnostic, nothing in particular, Mormon, Jewish, Christian, whatever, 65% of people will say Christian. That's the box that they check. But that can mean absolutely anything. It's just how you identify yourself. So when I speak to audiences and I give this data and I say, you know, how many people feel like about two out of every three Americans are committed Christ followers is laughter, right? Because we know intuitively when we look around at culture that it doesn't seem like 65% of people are Christians. And that's because that kind of research is not looking at what people actually believe. It's just how they identify themselves. So there's other research that's been done, thankfully, on what people do actually believe. And this comes from Arizona Christian University's Cultural Research Center. And the director of research there is Dr. George Barna. He has been there for a couple of years now, but he's been doing worldview research for decades. So he's well known in this area. And what they're doing is instead of asking people, hey, how do you identify yourself? They're giving people surveys with dozens of questions about what they believe and how they live their lives. And then it's the researchers who take that data, they take those answers and then classify people according to worldviews based on the core truths that they believe or don't believe. And so based on that, 6% of Americans have a biblical worldview meaning that they're seeing the world through the lens of the core truths that are taught in the Bible. And I have 6% in the book, but actually they did just release an update to that a couple of months ago. And they say that it's down to 4%. 
So this is kind of the numerical status of Christians in America, that you have a majority who say, yes, I'm a Christian, but then you have a very small and shrinking minority of people who actually hold beliefs that line up with what we would think that name means based on what the Bible teaches. So there's a big gap there. And I think that has a lot of implications for us as Christians today to understand what's going on and to respond to it. Yeah. And, and maybe I'll post this in, in the show notes uh, down below, uh, because it, in my years of teaching high school worldview at the beginning of the year, I would always start with a worldview test. So Summit Ministries uh, puts out a, a worldview survey test uh, that you can take for free online and it asks you about 30 or 40 questions about what you believe about God, what you believe about morality and the nature of salvation and what you believe about the Bible, whether you think it's a word of God or not, and, and science and evolution, all this kind of stuff. And it will then break down and say what percentage of the six worldviews that Summit teaches, uh, which would be Christianity, Islam, postmodernism, secularism, Marxism, and new spirituality. And it will say what percentage of each worldview you hold to. Now, at my school, it's not all Christian school students, but it is a Christian school. And I would probably only have maybe two or three students out of anywhere between some years I had 50 students, other years I had 100. Probably two or three that would take that survey and come out 100% Christian worldview. Um, and it was often very surprising to students that were claimed to be Christian, had been raised in a Christian school, and they test out to like a 50% secular worldview, or they hold ideas of postmodernism and secularism and, and whatnot. And they're like, wait, what? Like, what 40% of me is secular? And I'm like, well, I don't know, but we're going to figure that as we go throughout the year because the survey doesn't say exactly what questions. And so um, th this is, I think it's eye-opening for a lot of Christians who have been born and raised in the church and just think that, yeah, I'm a Christian. I go to church. Therefore, I must have biblical ideas. And so maybe the, the first question here is it is hard to pin down what a biblical worldview is. And and I've seen comments about this uh, and all the time of, of, you know, progressive Christians and whatnot saying, well, what really, what is a biblical worldview? Because it depends on your interpretation of what the Bible teaches. Um, and so kind of how are some of these surveys at least, or how would you kind of maybe give a broad overview to those listening to help them understand, like, what are those core questions to help them understand if they have a biblical worldview? Yeah, well, that's a that's a rich question because yeah. you're right. You can define this in any kind of way. It's the same thing with any word, right? People can come along and say, well, I'm going to redefine what the word flower means. So, you know, we can, we can go on and on about definitions. So for the purposes of this book, I actually state this up front in the very beginning on a single page before you read because I wanted to just get that question out of the way. And I basically say for purposes of this book, I'm taking a biblical worldview to mean that someone, it's an in-house discussion for those who are committed committed to the authority and the inspiration of scripture, that this is the authoritative word of God and to hold beliefs that are consistent with that being true. So that's that's how I treat it in the book. Now, like you said, there are interpretation issues. There are things that we are going to disagree on as Christians, for example, about baptism. We, it's well known that we have different denominations that have different understandings of the nature of baptism. Okay, that's fine. But there are certain core truths that as Christians, these are the essential things that, that we come around in terms of who is God and who is Jesus and what is the nature of man. These kind of basic worldview questions. So those, those are the things that we're talking about when we talk about worldview things. Now, there's a separate question embedded in this, which is, well, how do the researchers define it? So people often ask me about this when I give these statistics. Oh, only 6% of people have a biblical worldview. Well, what are those researchers defining it as? Well, 
if anyone's interested in going in depth about that research, I interviewed Dr. George Barna on my podcast, and that was last September on the Natasha Crane podcast. And we get in deep into all these questions. Uh, like I, I'm a statistics person, like I said, so we talk about a lot about the, the detailed data there so you can get a better idea for it. But one thing that came out of that interview that I don't think that they've published anywhere that I'll just share here is that when they do this research, they're not trying to, you know, pinpoint people who can answer this deep theological exam. You know, it's not about trying to nail people and get them down to like, oh, you're you're not a real Christian because you didn't know this detailed um, piece of theology. These are basic questions about who you believe God is and do you believe that there's absolute truth or that, you know, morality is objective, these kinds of questions. And in order to be characterized or categorized as part of that biblical worldview group, you don't have to get 100% of your answers lining up with what the Bible teaches either. So even within this very reasonable set of questions, you only have to get 80%. (laughs) So that 6% of people or 4% now, that reflects those who answer at least 80% of their questions with respect to what the Bible teaches. Yeah. So, and they're actually, uh, for those who are interested, they're actually working on releasing something that the public can take. It's just from what I understand, there are some technical things coming along with that that have postponed it, but that is still coming out. Perfect. But but you're right. The biblical worldview question, that is a very big question and people can define a lot of ways. And what Dr. Barna said is that based on his work over 40 plus years of interviewing people and surveying people on worldview, this is the output of that, of saying these are the things that distinguish the way people believe and how they think and how they live. And they've tested this extensively in terms of the the distinctives that would matter in terms of that survey research. Yeah, no, that's helpful to kind of hear the the the, the Barna side of it. Again, I've taken the, the summit survey a lot of times, but it is very simple questions like, do you believe God exists? Yes or no? Uh, if so, what kind of God exists? Is it Allah? Is it uh, is God in everything or is God a right. person? Uh, is God three persons? And then the question, is Jesus God or is he just a human? Uh, is the Bible God's word or is it just a man-made document? Yeah, is morality objective? Uh, is, does truth exist? You know, these kind of just more simple questions, not, you know, can you understand and explain the hypostatic union of Christ? Christ. Um, And so that's kind of, it is those more generic questions. That's good and helpful to understand. Um, Now I'm curious in, in kind of what you researched and found, why is there such this, such a massive disconnect between, you know, 65 people maybe going to church, saying they're a Christian, um, and then actually holding a consistent worldview. And I think it's probably very similar, or at least uh, is, is kind of the, the, the underlying cause of a conversation I had with Nancy Piercy when talking about uh, men in society and Christian men and how supportive of their family are they. And there's this massive difference between Christian men who go to church and read the Bible and take their faith seriously are far and above more loving and caring and spend more time with their family. And then there's Christian in name only and just say they're a Christian, but don't really believe it or follow it. And they're actually far worse than the general population as far as uh, how they love their family. So there's definitely this separation. And so I'm just curious for those who go to church and uh, and claim to be a Christian, why really is there this massive disconnect and not actually believing biblical things? Well, that's a really interesting question. I wish that there was research on. I have not seen research that tries to get to the why, because that's that would be complex for a number of reasons that you might imagine. A yeah. lot of times people aren't aware of their own why, right? So now you're kind of getting into psychoanalysis. But I would say a few things that jump out. Number one, when you say, you know, 65% of people say that they're Christians, and then some tiny percent of that actually believe the things that line up with the Bible, some percent of that, and I think it's a fairly significant percent, don't care that they hold beliefs that line up with what 
what the Bible teaches. So I think sometimes when we hear this, this data, we're assuming that everyone would want to have a biblical worldview and treat the Bible as authoritative and hold the beliefs based on what the Bible teaches. I think we assume that they want that. I don't think that's the case because you have, for example, a lot of progressive Christians who would say, yes, I'm a Christian, if you ask them for purposes of that, that survey. But if you ask them their beliefs on the Bible, they would not treat it as the authoritative word of God. It's something very different to most progressive Christians. So they don't care if they hold beliefs about gender and sexuality, for example, that aren't consistent with what the Bible teaches. So I think that's one big segment. It's hard to know exactly how how big of a segment that is, but I think that's a huge one. And then you have a large segment in the church who don't read the Bible at all. So even if they were to say, yes, I believe that the Bible is the word of God, they don't actually know what's in it. Right. So this is a huge problem. There's also much research that shows that Christians overwhelmingly do not read the Bible on a consistent daily basis, even those who are churchgoers, as you say. So people sit in church every week if they go that often, and they still don't read the Bible that much. So you're not going to have a biblical worldview if you're just going off of your own, you know, (laughs) your own thoughts about the world. And so if you're not in the Bible regularly, how can we expect that they're going to have a biblical worldview? And then I think you get to another segment of people who say, yes, I believe the Bible is the word of God. And yes, I'm reading it consistently. But even when they read it consistently, I think overwhelmingly, a lot of Christians are not asking the right questions when they come Mm -hmm. to the text. And this is a problem with the way that I think a lot of Bible studies are run, honestly. Um, A lot of study groups that happen within the church, they're trying to get to the Bible, which I love, right? They're well-meaning, but then they come to it and the question is always, so you know, what does this mean for you? Well, it's important that we're applying scripture to our lives, of course, but we're if we're not asking better questions, worldview-forming questions, then we're going right. to see a lot of people who don't have a biblical worldview. Questions like, okay, I just read this text. What does this say about who God is, right? What does this say about who I am as a human, about anthropology? What does this say about the relationship between us? What does this say about what's required of me? There are better questions that we can be asking that help us to accurately form our worldview than just, you know, what does this mean for me today? And as I'm going about my business. So that's, that's my attempt to psychoanalyze it a bit. Like I said, to my knowledge, there's not specific research on that, but I think that those are kind of three big categories that you would see. Yeah. And that's helpful. And, and I, you know, as I was kind of thinking through this and, and, and the question and and reading your book, I, I was, you know, drawn back to the other work that you've done and the work that we're both doing and kind of the apologetics world and kind of seeing this lack of really this deeper understanding of worldviews and apologetics and a defense for the faith. And I think a lot of youth groups, you know, will focus on the more practical things, how to be loving and how to have good relationships. And that's all wonderful. But if you're not teaching on a biblical view of sexuality and whatnot, then why would we be surprised that our students are growing up holding a secular view of sexuality while still being in the church? And so, you know, I think there's the aspect of, of realizing that maybe how many parents are understanding biblical worldviews themselves to be able to impart that on their children, to be able to ask good questions as their kids watch movies and engage the world around them. Like, Hey, did you notice that? What do you think about that sign? Do you think that's true? Um, or is that a lie? And so I think, you know, your other work in, in parenting and training up kids, I think is, is hitting that need that's maybe missing and why there's a disconnect as well as maybe what's being taught in churches. So, you know, there's a lot that's kind of coming here. Um, now I think the other question that might be people asking is like, well, what does it matter? If I go to church, look, I just, I believe the gospel. I preach the gospel. Um, what does it matter that I have a consistent biblical worldview? You know, all the students that I taught, they were, they were good students and they were good friends and they were nice to each other and they had a good life. Why does it matter that we want uh, a higher percentage of people holding a consistent biblical worldview when a lot of people just believe 
you know, they would believe what they believe and hey, we get along, so to speak. Yeah, I think two things. One, it's for the sake of people's own relationship with the Lord. And two, it's for our ability to be salt and light. So it's both personal and our engagement with others. So on a personal basis, when we say, well, why does it matter if my beliefs line up with everything in the Bible? Well, you might be talking to God. You might be thinking you have a relationship with God, but what God do you think you're talking to? Who is this God, right? Because if you are defining it according to your own standards, your own thoughts or hypotheses about who God is, and you're not going to how to the scripture to see how God has revealed himself, then you're actually having a relationship with a different God than the one that you think you're having that relationship with, or at least defining it differently. And so you see, for example, you know, Christians who have some bad theology in this area, when we talk about the prosperity gospel or something like that, or they start to bring in new age beliefs, new thought beliefs, where they think that, you know, as long as I'm manifesting in some way, as long as I'm really like just putting it out there, like God's going to want to bless me in that way. Well, that's not how God works. God is not a genie. And so then you see that people become disappointed with God and people get angry at God. And it's not that they have no knowledge of God. Maybe they've read some of scripture or a lot of scripture, but if you have wrong ideas about God, it can really mislead you in your own life and in your own relationship with him. And, you know, the same thing with understanding yourself comes along with this because one of the pieces of research when they look at, um, you know, what are some of the biggest things that people get wrong when it comes to not having a biblical worldview where they otherwise might is that people, Christians overwhelmingly think that people are fundamentally good. This is one of the biggest yes. ones where they get it wrong. <laughs> if you think that you're fundamentally good, you you cannot begin to imagine how many implications that has for your life. If you think that everyone's just fundamentally good, you have a completely wrong understanding about your very nature, and that is going to affect how you approach God, what you think your relationship with God is. So this is a, a really big area that will affect your own relationship with Him. And then also for your ability to be salt and light to others. If you have a wrong understanding of God, you have a wrong understanding of mankind, you have a wrong understanding of the nature of reality, even if you can kind of talk about these things in generalities, you're going to be sharing something that's wrong. So this is really important in terms of our ability to be salt and light to others. It's yeah. personal relationship with God and our ability to engage with the culture. Yeah, I, I love these thoughts. I, I love this. And I just want to kind of uh, uh, emphasize kind of what you're saying is, because, you know, for those who are listening, right, imagine the illustration I often use is like, you know, tell me about your wife, right? And if I start telling you about my wife, I describe her and it's like, oh, she's, you know, six foot five and, you know, has black hair or whatever. And it's like, I thought your wife was like five one and has brown hair. Like what? Like, and, and I start describing her completely wrong, then what does it mean to say I have a great relationship with my wife if if what I believe about her is completely different, where it's a di completely different person? And so there is an importance to have true beliefs about God if we are going to have that deep relationship with him. I, I love the point that you made about these, these false ideas, though, as well kind of leading to people being disenfranchised and kind of upset. Um, you know, uh, Sean McDowell and John Marriott just came out with this brand new book, Set Adrift, Deconstructing What You Believe Without Sinking Your Faith. And one of the things that John Marriott talks about is one of the reasons that people deconstruct, and there's this huge deconstruction movement right now, is um, because they have false ideas and false expectations of what God should do for them, and he doesn't. And then that makes them mad and upset at God and they walk away. Um, and so if you listening have had questions like this or your kids, you know, we often, again, coming back to people think that we are inherently good. If, if God is unjust, 
How could he send people to hell? How, how is that fair? God is this unjust God for punishing people. Well, why is it? Well, because you believe that we are innocent. Right? And so there's this fundamental worldview idea of secularism that we're inherently good people, that now God's the bad guy for punishing, for requiring a blood sacrifice of Jesus on the cross, for requiring these things for our salvation because we're inherently good. Rather than recognizing we are sinful, we are broken, we need a savior. And I was just doing a Q&A last night where the question was asked of like, well, why, why, why is Jesus the only way? Why not these other people? And you know, my response is, look, I would love to be able to say everyone's going to heaven everyone's safe. Like that would be easy. No one would get mad at me. <laughs> Just like I think doctors would love to tell every patient, you're healthy, you're fine. The issue yeah. is that's just simply not true. That's not what scripture teaches. And so without the bad news of you're sick, you have cancer, no one is going to take chemotherapy. You're not like, hey, you're healthy. Now here's some chemo. Well, why would I take chemo. I'm, I'm healthy. And so, um, I don't know if you want to jump in here quickly, but this kind of leads to the, the next part of what you talk about. And I think was fascinating about your book, uh, is this idea of, of hitting felt needs. And again, I think in our evangelism, if we're having conversations and we're telling people you need chemo, you need a cure for your sin, but they believe that they're healthy, then they're going to go, I, I, I'm good. I, I don't need God. I'm fine. Life is great. Uh, because there's this massive worldview difference. And so, um, what we're discussing here, though, is this, and what your book talks about is the secular influence. And so if you want to kind of talk a little bit here, and, and as you've kind of already started um, uh, with, with secularism influencing our view of humanity, that we're inherently good, and this kind of shaping us, how else is secularism influencing us? And kind of why is it so attractive? So secularism at its core is basically a belief system that's based on the authority of the self. Millions and millions of people can have very different kinds of beliefs. In fact, Dr. Barna says that 88% of people embrace an impure, unrecognizable worldview. They're just taking pieces from all kinds of other worldviews. It's not something that is necessarily logically coherent within itself. And so, yes, people believe all kinds of stuff. It is like a hodgepodge out there today, but there is something that fundamentally ties the worldviews of those millions of people with otherwise different beliefs together. And that's the authority of the self to determine what is true about reality, what is good or bad, right or wrong, harmful or helpful. This is the authority of the self. And that's the essence of what secularism is. A lot of times people take secularism to mean it's godless. Like, we, oh, we have this godless society, but that's not true. About 90% of people still believe in some kind of God or higher power, however they're yeah. going to define that. So it's not godlessness. It's about who's the authority for saying what's true. And that's the authority of the self. So it's interesting because we could be surrounded by people who worship aardvarks, theoretically. It could be anything that's out there in our society. But if you look at the Bible, you can see that this worldview that surrounds us today based on the authority of the self happens to be the very worldview that scripture tells us is so compelling to us. All of us want to go our own way. All of us wanted to gratify the cravings of our flesh. We want to go with our own desires, as Paul is saying in Ephesians 2. And so we love that. We love it when secular culture is kind of tempting us. Well, we don't love the temptation, but when they do tempt us, we love what they have to say. It's a felt need because by our very human nature, every single one of us wants to go our own way. Every single one of us wants to think that we can be the boss and not God. And as Christians, of course, we have the Holy Spirit who helps us in that, but that's not to say that we never struggle with not wanting to go 
our own way. And so I think this is kind of the essence of it is that Christian, as Christians, we have to recognize that's the battle. The nature of the worldview that surrounds us is all about this authority of the self. We need to know that we find that compelling by our very human nature, as scripture tells us. And then we need to get a clearer view of what exactly is it that secular culture is saying and what is it offering so that we can resist that and remain clear. Absolutely. And and this is where it kind of, okay, why are these worldview ideas so important? Because it has a direct implication and outworking on how we live. And so if yourself is the standard and there is no authority over you that you have to submit to, then you kind of do what you want. We see this in our sexual ethics and we see this in so much. And right now, in my research, uh, I'm reading a, a ton of research right now on, on transgenderism as I'm working through a theology of the body and how to apply it to the issue of transgenderism. And I'm reading a lot of testimonies from trans individuals who say, like, when I finally just recognize my true identity as a trans woman or trans man, that is when I felt free. That is when I came alive. And this idea of rather than scripture saying, die to self, follow Christ, put your identity in him, I am now the author of this and I'm living out my identity uh, and and it's a freeing thing. And, and that's true. Like if, if sin wasn't exciting and freeing and, 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 and felt good, no, then we wouldn't engage in it. And so it's so true that as uh, the Christian worldview says, as you say, uh, the, the inherent brokenness of us, that is that felt need. That is the desire that we have. And so secularism comes along and says, you can have it. You can be the author of your life. Um, I mean, that's, yeah, you can, you, know, you can feel totally to free. You can, yeah. you can feel totally free and still not actually be free. That's yeah. the thing. It's like, that's what secular culture promotes so much today. Hey, you know, I feel so free now that I've deconverted. For example, yeah. people will say, I feel so free after my deconstruction. I feel so free now that I've, you know, transitioned genders. But that freedom that everyone is using the same word with is actually not a freedom at all. It's, a, it's yeah. just a slavery to sin. Absolutely. And so I, I think that a lot of times people don't think about the different meanings of freedom and they just assume that feeling free inherently is a good thing. Yeah. <laughs> you, you need to question it just because I feel free doesn't mean I actually am. Yeah. And I, I think we need to get people thinking more deeply about that. Yeah. And I've talked about that on the show many times, you know, and I've I discussed it first, I think on here with Sean McDowell, where he talks about, you know, the freedom from versus freedom for right. Right? freedom from rules. And I now I'm free because I have no restrictions, but that so misses it because it misses the freedom for doing what you were created yeah. and designed uh, to do. Um, and so, yeah, th this is the, the attractiveness that we have to be aware of to be able to fight against if we're not thinking worldviewly, worldviewishly, I think is the way Brett Kunkel says it. I don't know if that's a word, uh, but worldviewishly about the it world around us. It is a word. Brett uses it, it's a word. Um, yeah. then, then, we, then we're missing it and we start to fall captive to these ideas and we're not kind of living those consistently. Um, now, uh, uh, with this idea, um, there's another aspect you talk about kind of from the marketing perspective of one is that secularism kind of hits these felt needs and you address one of the felt needs here of that it really hits. And so it's attractive. There's kind of another aspect uh, that, that kind of makes it very influential in our lives as well. Kind of, can you walk through that as well? Uh, I'm not sure what part you're specifically referring to. Oh, the, the tenets of secularism. Is that what? No, this would be you, you, you sorry. You gave the example of, of uh, marketing. Let me pull it up here really quick. Um, uh, that. I thought was just so fascinating because it addresses uh, what we have. Now, where is that part? Um, 
but of the popularity of it, right? There's, there's kind of, you, you gave the example of the iPhone, right? So if you're a salesperson and and it's, they're trying to sell you an iPhone, you're like, no, I'm good. I, I have, I'm fine with my phone. But once the iPhones become so prominent, right, the, the prominence is the point, so prominent, it's like I, I, I can't resist this anymore. I just have to give in. And so there's ways in which the secular worldview is influencing us. And number one, that it does hit those felt needs, that it is attractive, but also the prominence of it to where it is everywhere. Yeah. And so it feels like we are stuck where it's like, I, I have to give in. How, how can I resist this? Right. And so I don't know if there's more to go in there or if there's maybe some wisdom to kind of speak into Christians kind of uh, addressing or trying to come against the prominence of a secular worldview and the influence it has. Well, that was a good summary. You you answered the question well there. But yeah, I talk about I talk about marketing in a few places in the book, so that's why I wasn't sure which one you were you were okay, yeah, trying to. But but so when it when we talk about meeting those felt needs, like how do people feel? What do they think they need? Now, a feel a felt need isn't necessarily a real need, so we have to make that distinction in marketing. Right. But with respect to the felt needs, it's often about how relevant something is. So how how relevant is a given message to me? And that's what we were talking about before that this message that, hey, you're the boss, you're the authority, that feels very relevant to us by our very human nature. So that's the first part of making something very compelling. And the second part, like you said, is how prominent it is. So if you start hearing about this all the time everywhere, then you start thinking about it a lot more. It's not just something that's being said in the small pocket of culture somewhere like, hey, you know, you can be your own boss. You don't have to go God's way, go your own way. We could probably tune it out a little bit more. But because this is everywhere today, you know, the 6% having a biblical worldview, 88% having a hodgepodge of ideas that come back to secularism, that 88% means we're surrounded by it absolutely everywhere. And so that can make it very compelling to us. We start thinking, well, I'm maybe I'm wrong. If I'm in this tiny minority of people, we are inclined to think that we're wrong about something. It's just kind of our human nature, right? If we're the only people we think think something, then maybe we've really missed the boat somewhere. And it's kind of interesting because I've, I've witnessed this firsthand at our Unshaken conferences that I'm doing with Elisa Childers and Frank Turek. And we've done three dates this year. We just did one in Tucson. Uh, we have one coming up in Nashville November 4th, in case anyone's in Nashville area. But the, at every single one of these conferences, when people come up to talk to us afterwards and, and you know, it's kind of like the book signing line or whatever, but like we hear stories from people and what we keep hearing from people, Elisa and I were just talking about this, is it's just nice to know I'm not crazy. I hear those words everywhere we go, that it's so nice to be with like-minded people. This is a, a cultural engagement type of conference to just get people back to the same things we're talking about here, about the authority of scripture and what that means for our engagement today. And so people are lonely in the church who have a biblical worldview. This is this is fascinating to me. I have really been thinking a lot about this, and I think Elise and I are going to do something on our podcast about it, because it's not just that Christians feel lonely in culture, but if only 6% of Christians or if Americans have a biblical worldview, that means that those with a biblical worldview are lonely within the church. And that number, by the way, if you look at evangelical churches, it's about 21% of people have a biblical worldview. So that means if you have a biblical worldview, you're adhering to the authority of scripture and you believe the things that would line up with the truth of what God says, eight out of 10 people around you in your own church on average would disagree. So I think when Christians come to a conference like this, where we're talking about the truths of scripture and that, yes, this is what we need to stand firm on. 
people go, okay, I'm not crazy after all. But you wouldn't think you're crazy if you weren't constantly hearing other ideas around you, even within the church. So I know that I'm taking this a little bit in a different direction, but it just really stands out to me because that prominence of the secular worldview isn't just in culture, it's in the church. And when we see that, we're going to have a lot of lonely Christians who are saying, well, I'm still holding on to God's word being true, uh, but it feels like I'm kind of crazy because even the other ladies or gentlemen in my Bible study, have a different view than I do. So yeah. this is something that we need to consider in the church, not just outside of it. No, that, that is so good. I love the direction that you went with it because it made me think as well as not, is, is not just helping them understand they're not crazy, but also encouraging them in that. Uh, it made me think of uh, Christopher West and his body and in his book, um, um, embodied or our bodies tell God's story. Uh, he, he says, you know, growing up in the church, right. It, the kind of the sexual ethic was, well, just like, don't have sex, like just don't engage. And it's like, from, from a student perspective, it was like, here's the world that is feasting and all this pleasure and joy. And here you're asking all the, 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 the Christian kids to have what he called the starvation diet. And he says, look, you, because it's just, just don't, just, just don't. Right. And he goes, look, you can only starve for so long before you finally just go, I can't starve any longer. And you give in to that feast. And he goes, what we miss is the beauty and the biblical view of sexuality and marriage. And what Christianity actually offers is the marriage feast of the land that God actually wants to reshape your desires and satisfy them in a greater way. And if so, if we're not kind of approaching and and I think also encouraging and helping people see the beauty and the goodness and the flourishing that happens in living the way God has called them to live, then it sometimes feels like I'm this minority. Everyone else is 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 flourishing everyone else is feasting and here i am starving and it's not that and it's it's hard to resist that pressure just like when you're fasting but when you realize that and are encouraged that what you believe is actually the true feast then it's easy to reject and say no to those ideas that are out there trying to tempt you to live a way that's inconsistent with scripture Yeah, and there are some serious consequences for those Christians who are adhering to biblical truth today. So the other thing that we keep hearing from Christians who are doing that is that they're getting cut off by people. They're being canceled by their family. They're being cut off by their adult kids. We talk to many people at every conference whose adult kids will not talk to them anymore. Mm. So it's it's kind of a both and, right? It's it's we have to encourage people to see it from the beauty side, which is absolutely right. Like you're saying, we have it's not just oh we're we're not going to to give into this. But here's why it's so beautiful. Here's why the beauty of the truth of the Christian worldview. But then we also have to remember that people are starting to suffer some pretty serious personal consequences, whether it's job related, family related, friends related, whatever it is. And so it's a lot easier to be like the other Christians you see around you who maybe don't have a (laughs) biblical worldview. It's much easier to step over into that and just maybe show up to church each week and have coffee with people and have a lighthearted Bible study and um, talk about the giants in your life. I mean, it's a lot easier to do that than to be the ones who are standing firm and being cut off by people. So we do have to encourage the church. You are a hundred percent right. Yeah, I love it. It's that encouragement, helping them know they're not alone, they're not crazy, and just really coming alongside and trying to foster that, as well as trying to engage the people that don't have the biblical worldview to to equip them and help them think through the ideas they have and try to get them to believe this more kind of consistent thing, rather than believing they can kind of approach 
life from this kind of a buffet uh, worldview, picking yeah. and choosing the things that they like uh, that are inconsistent. So anyways, I've taken so much time here really kind of addressing this foundational principle because I think it's built so much into it. And as, as you kind of then move in and through the book, uh, which I encourage people to get, kind of talking about how then to form um, different kind of, of biblically centered beliefs, thoughts, and actions. And I, and I love how these are kind of tied in and connected because it, it reminds me of uh, Sean McDowell and Jay Warner Wallace put out the book um, for youth leaders. But anyways, they present this so world. So the next view. generation will know. There we go. So yeah. the next generation will know, right? <laughs> and they have this worldview triangle where it, they talked about how uh, your worldview shapes what your what you value, and your values influence your behavior. So if you are talking with a group of students and they're acting a certain way, well, they are probably acting that way based on what they value and their values are shaped by their worldview. And so you kind of have something similar where it's like, hey, we are believing certain things. Our beliefs our beliefs influence our thoughts. And then what we think then leads to our actions. And so uh, as we kind of finish up our time here and work through this, I kind of in those last three parts, I kind of address some of these points. So then what does it look like and kind of what do you walk through then in that foundational principle of being faithfully different in our beliefs? What does it mean to believe biblically? What are you kind of getting at there? Well, believing biblically, if you're trying to have a biblical worldview, going back to my definition that I had at the beginning of the book, is that you're going to hold the beliefs that line up with what the Bible teaches. So instead of kind of going the cultural way where feelings are your guide to everything, it is a process of saying, maybe I don't understand why God would do something the way he did. Maybe I don't like what God is saying in scripture. Maybe I don't want it to be this way, but because I want to have a biblical worldview, I accept that this is God's word. And rather than going with how I feel, about it, I'm going to go with what God has said. That is what I mean by faithfully different believing. It means that we're going to approach scripture as God's authoritative word for us, and we are going to conform our beliefs to what scripture teaches rather than just going with what I feel should be true. And yeah. so that's kind of the, the focus of those chapters. And I talk about, um, you know, there's a, a lot of influence of naturalism, for example, and I talk about the influence of progressive Christianity to start throwing out parts of the Bible. And I talk about dealing with doubt um, as an example, because, you know, all of this presupposes that God's word is God's word and that it's true. But what if you start to have doubts about that? What if you start saying, I don't know if this is you know, what I need to believe. And so I address all of those in those yeah. chapters on the believing section. Yeah. And that's so good because, you know, feelings are a wonderful, beautiful thing that God has given us, uh, but have to be properly ordered based again on the authority and the truth of God's word. And, and I always say this uh, and it's true, like for, for me, that's kind of my big area of doubt is, is, is unanswered prayer that when you pray and it feels like God is not listening. And so then it's like, come on, God, where are, where were you? I'm praying and this is not going away. Like what's going on here. And we have to recognize like feelings are so good, but when I allow that feeling like God is not listening to get me to believe that he's not rather than trusting scripture, when God says he hears us, when we pray and he walks through us in these difficulties, um, then that is going to, again, lead me to start doubting God's goodness, God's existence, and and going into these areas of doubt. And so maybe in that kind of topic of doubt a little bit, um, did you find anything, just curious if you found anything on like, you know, the, the different types of doubt, right? But how many intellectual doubts is kind of driven by these based on that feeling of, of, I don't feel like God is there. So it's more kind of an emotional doubt that leads to these intellectual issues. Kind of how, how do we understand doubt in people and how do we kind of maybe help walk them through that? 
Well, there, a lot of people have kind of undertaken some kind of attempt to categorize doubt. Gary Habermas, I know, has a book that where he, you know, he took uh, takes it from intellectual and emotional and volitional, uh, right. you know, just I want to go my own way kind of thing. Uh, so I don't I don't know that anyone has actually classified it in terms of research and said, well, it's this percent and this percent. And I think the reason you can't do that is because like we were talking about earlier, people don't necessarily know. <laughs> you don't know right. all the factors that go into it. You mentioned John Marriott, Marriott earlier, and he has another book. Uh, I can't remember what's called the anatomy of the anatomy um, of deconversion of deconversion. And that yeah. I think is probably the most research that I've seen. So if it's somebody is interested in that specific Great topic, book. I think that's a, that's a really good book. But I think I, f- I focus more in the doubt chapter on just trying to, instead of getting at what exactly is the, the reason for it is to give people questions. So regardless of you're coming at this from an intellectual perspective, or it's an emotional response, instead of saying, you know, here's the problem. I try to give people questions to ask things to remember as they're searching. So for example, a really important thing is to be honest with ourselves about the nature of truth. Are you actually seeking to know what is true versus what I want to be true? So have an honest conversation with yourself about that. Um, Another thing that I'm pointing out is that the truth test for Christianity, what makes Christianity true or false is the resurrection. First Corinthians 15, 14, if Christ has not been raised, then your faith is in vain. It's useless. And so is our preaching, right? And so it's so important to remember this. I always harp on this one when I give talks, because especially to parents, I, you never see, well, I shouldn't say never because there's always the exception, but you very, very rarely see someone walk away from Christianity today because they're like, hey, look, I understand the truth test for Christianity is the resurrection. I looked at the evidence for the resurrection and I just found a lacking. And so I can't be a Christian anymore. You never see this, almost never see this. Instead, people walk away because, for example, they've been hurt by the church or they don't like the church's teachings on sexuality or they're bothered by a, a, a Christian experience. So much of it is experiential. And so, one of the most important things that especially I think we can help young people with is to recognize that, that these might have been really bad experiences. I mean, in some cases they have been really hurt by the church, but that doesn't make Christianity false. So if you're looking to understand how to process your doubt, make sure you're keeping your mind on, well, am I searching for what is true, not for what I'm upset about or anything else along those lines, but what is actually true? And do I understand that the one thing that makes Christianity true or false is whether or not Jesus was raised from the dead? It's not about what I want the most. It's not about what I like the most. It's not about what most people believe. It's not about any of those things. It's about whether or not Jesus was raised from the dead. And I want to investigate that topic. So those are the kinds of things that I talk about in the doubt chapter to just kind of help people think better about processing the doubt in the first place. Yeah, that's good. I think, uh, you know, Summit Ministries calls them the different faith paths, like individualistic faith path or the feeling, you know, the emotional faith path or the, you know, popularity faith path is the truth is that which is most people believe. And it's like, no, truth is that which lines up with the evidence, right? That we have right. evidence to confirm that it's true. Um, all right. Now, another really huge question for you. Um, and just if you have advice on this, what comes to mind is people saying, okay, I, I want to believe biblically, but again, it's so hard because I go to scripture, there's things that are confusing. Um, maybe I'm talking about more the, the finer details, but then there's the scholars on all sides. So again, I'm, I'm reading a book right now, uh, advocating for transgenderism from a biblical perspective, and it's written by a scholar and he quotes a bunch of scholars uh, that supposedly are arguing, say, look, you can be trans and here's how the Bible supports that trans identity and you can be a Christian. And so you can really find scholars to get you to agree with anything biblically. So if we're trying to say, look, you need to learn how to think biblically, um, 
You can trust Thinkwell. No, um, but uh, how? <laughs> like, you have what, the definitive is... interpretation of all things right here. Everything on this show is accurate and true according <laughs> to scripture. No, but like, I think that's a good question is, is how do we help Christians navigate so many voices telling them this is what the Bible says? Yeah. Well, that's a really, a really good question. I'm not sure if I have, um, you know, the <laughs> ultimate answer on it, but a couple of thoughts is, you know, I, I'm like a super analytical, logical person. And I think in terms of flow charts, <laughs> I've actually thought of doing a flow chart on a subject like this to help Christians think about it. Because Perfect. sometimes when you see that there are different views on what the Bible's teaching, there's one big branch off at the very beginning. And it's between those who are saying, I believe that the Bible is the inspired inspired, authoritative, inerrant word of God, and those who do not. So you're right. You can find people who are saying, oh, the Bible teaches this or that, and they can have very different views. But the very first question to ask is, well, what is their view of the Bible to begin with? So for example, on the question of sexuality, what you'll see is that there are some people who are writing about this, you know, from a perspective that would go against what the historic Christian faith has taught about sexuality, but they would also not claim to hold that the Bible is the word of God, even though they're still promoting that this should be like a Christian viewpoint. So that tells you something to begin with, because if somebody's coming at it from that perspective of it not being God's word, they're going to come to some very different conclusions. Um, so, and that doesn't make it true or false in and of itself. But if you've already come to the conclusion that you're adhering to God's word as the authoritative scripture, then you need to be aware when somebody's coming to it from a totally different perspective. Doesn't mean don't read them. I, I love yeah. reading up various viewpoints. I mean, I always tell people to read The God Delusion by Richard Dawkins to understand how, you know, atheists think or at least how Dawkins thinks. I mean, it's helpful. So this is not to say don't read other views, but to be aware, what is this person's view of scripture, the nature of the scripture before I hear what they have to say? And then you have other strands of conversation going on where people would say, I do believe that the Bible is God's word, but here's how I would interpret it. And I think that's where it gets more confusing confusing for Christians, because then yeah. you have people who are advocating for views that don't line up with what Christians have historically believed, but they're saying, I agree with you that this is God's word, but here are the cultural and historical pieces that we need to consider, which means that it's saying something different than what we have been saying. So, you know, how do you distinguish between those? It, this is a tough thing to answer because there's no easy, you know, oh, it's just a one, two, three process. One right. thing is to always read scripture yourself, not that you're the official arbiter of scripture, but sometimes when people claim to be adhering to God's word, it's very obvious they're not. So sometimes it's not just, oh, they have a different opinion and they think the scripture is authoritative. You look at it and you're like, no, this is <laughs> this is not at all clearly what scripture is saying. Um, I think the harder thing is when people do come at it and have some very different backgrounds. And, you know, when you talk about things like age of the earth and evolution, for example, you know, this gets very complicated because you have scientists on different sides who all adhere to the authority of scripture, but they come out in different ways. And those things are ultimately things that I think as Christians, we come to as secondary issues or tertiary issues. That's why those words exist, because there are things that we can legitimately look at and say, okay, you could bring out these different interpretations, but they're not of primary importance. The things that are of primary importance, those essentials that the early church taught that you read in the book of Acts, like this frames the entire right. book of Acts of what is being taught. Those are the things that we you know, remain confident in that this is not a matter of whoever wants to interpret it, but rather this is very, very clear in scripture. 
That is so good. I, I love it because yeah, the, the, we we can argue about all these other things that are secondary and are hard to interpret. But the, again, the things that really kind of clarify, as we've talked about at the beginning, a biblical worldview are the things that are very clear in scripture of God's existence, Jesus being God, his death and resurrection and these sort of things. Right. Um, you know, but it does come to mind because again, like the book that I'm currently reading is, 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 is said to be the best theological argument for transgenderism and has endorsements from some very high level people, well-known people. And yet I'm reading it and most of the arguments in there, Yes, maybe like pull a Bible verse in making the argument, but it clearly is not an argument from Scripture. Uh, it's an argument using Scripture, but it's not right. from Scripture. And it's pretty easy to see. And so I'm thinking like, hey, I went to this book to try to get the best theological arguments for transgenderism. And they're there's actually not really theological arguments. It's just they use some idea found in Scripture to then make some kind of side point. And so hopefully... Yeah. As people recognize, it's there's clearly the people who deny the authority of Scripture, uh, but then there are some that say, no, I take the authority of Scripture. But then in the argument, you can really see, no, this isn't following Scripture to yeah. its log logical conclusions. And so um, I think that's so helpful to kind of work through. Maybe I might spend some time later on in future episodes uh, kind of working through that as well. Um, OK, so so kind of moving on, then how then does do you see the connection between um, believing, kind of leading to thinking? So then if we take our biblical beliefs and we believe the nature of God and and we believe accurate things about scripture, how then does that shape us into being faithfully different thinkers? So this is, this is a tricky part because I think this is where a lot of Christians who are biblically faithful um, start to, to fall off in terms of how do I apply that into thinking. And so one of my chapters in this section I know is the hardest one for people because it's kind of, it, it's more about looking at the philosophically, how does, how does this apply to the things that we see? So I talk a lot about morality, for example, and understanding just the nature of objective morality. Okay, so good. You believe that God exists and that he is the standard of all things, that we have an objective moral lawgiver. But now can you extend that into how you think about everything, how you think about things like justice and how you think about things like rights? We hear the word rights all the time today, right? But how many Christians have really thought through based on what they believe, how many have thought through, well, where do we get rights from? You know, who gives rights? Do we, what do we say when someone says, well, it's all about trans rights or it's about women's rights? When we hear this word rights all the time, even if you believe all true things from the Bible, a lot of Christians get stumped here. And I'm just using rights as one example that I talk about, but a lot of Christians get stumped here because they don't know how to then apply their beliefs to their thinking about things to say, okay, well, if God didn't exist, there would be no inherent human rights because rights are given by someone to someone. It's what right. you are, it's what you are owed, basically. And so without a God in existence, there are no rights. That's an easy thing to understand, but a lot of times we just have never thought about it before. And then if God does exist and he is the one who has given us basic human rights, does that mean that he's also given people the right to do the things that culture claims that we have rights to do today? No, it doesn't. I mean, we do not have a right to kill our unborn baby, for example. And sometimes people talk about reproductive justice and the, the right to do these things. So those are just some examples of extending our thinking from our believing and being able to engage, especially with the, the thick cultural issues today and to be able to say, okay, I know I, know I believe rightly, but can I? apply it. Can yeah. I apply it in how I think about the issues that I'm seeing and not get sucked into secular ways of thinking? 
Yeah. Yeah. And, 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 and so part of that, right, is, is not getting sucked in is kind of learning and, and growing in this idea of discernment. And so I am kind of curious is maybe kind of pulling from the parenting perspective, you know, speaking out of parents, working with students, but again, this can apply to everybody. How can we train young people to grow in their discernment so they don't need a parent or some scholar or some authority to always be telling them what is right and wrong, what is true and false, what's good and bad, but they can actually develop their own correct biblically based discerning discernment to do this themselves and be able to kind of spot these lies in the culture. So kind of, do you have any advice, kind of encouragement to parents uh, on how to equip and, and train their students, their children uh, to have and grow in discernment? Yeah. So I think that there are four things that, um, that parents need to make sure their kids are equipped with in order to have a confident faith today. So this is what I go through when I do talks to parents specifically. Number one, they have to understand deeply and accurately what the Bible teaches. That goes without saying, given everything we've already talked about, right? It's developing the biblical worldview to accurately understand it. Number two is why believe it. So what the Bible teaches, why believe it? This is the case for the truth of Christianity. Number three is understanding what others believe. So all those worldviews around us. And number four is answering objections. So I could, like I said, I do talks based around this, so I could go on about those forever, but you kind of get a feel for what I mean by them just by listing them off in that way. So in terms of how parents can, you know, in a practical sense, accomplish those things, I think that you can accomplish all of them based on giving a lot of application. So uh, whether, you know, if you're, if you're reading the Bible with your kids, obviously you're getting them on that number one point. And if you're teaching them some basic apologetics, you're getting on some of these other points, but then you have to actually give lots of examples. It's not just an academic exercise to say, we're going to go through these four different things over time. So use lots of examples from culture to pull in and have discussions about these things. And it will help you to discuss all of those things at the same time, what the Bible teaches, why believe it, what others believe, and how do you answer objections? So and this is why I do a lot of uh, things through my podcasts and through my blog still sometimes in just responding to things that you see culturally to help people to think better about these things. So I recently took this viral deconstruction post where someone had written this whole thing and shared thousands and thousands of times on, on Facebook and people found this very compelling. And I did a blog post where I just broke that down and I just took piece by piece of what she was saying and just responded to it, both from a biblical perspective of saying, well, this is not accurate how she's characterizing it, but also just the logic of it wasn't right. And just embedded in that whole process, those four questions get answered. The reason why it's so powerful to use practical applications like that, to not just talk about it in theory, but to find things that are happening on social media, to take news stories to discuss, is because it helps show kids that this stuff really is in the wild. <laughs> this is really what you're going to encounter. Now, if your kids are in public school, they're, you don't have to convince them of that. They're seeing a lot of it already. <laughs> They'll bring it to you. But, and, and similarly, at, at Christian schools, I mean, you get a lot of this too. But this just helps you to be able to open the door to conversation and say, hey, I saw this news story today. What, what does this assume about the world? You know, how is this consistent or inconsistent with a biblical worldview? Why should we believe that our view of it, once we've established it's different, why should we believe that ours is the true worldview? And what does this say about what other people believe? How would we respond? Those four things together really encompass a lot. So practical application, practical application, practical application. And it's easy to do if you kind of get your kids involved in these conversations, especially from an early age. 
from the yeah. very beginning. Like we're going to talk about these things and there's, there's so much to talk about. There's a lot of yeah. material in the world. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. No. And that is so good is, is just being aware, having our eyes open to what is around us and then being able to have conversations with our students or kids about that. So that's one thing I loved when I, when I taught my, my chapter on entertainment is just being able, I would, I would tell my students, I want you to send me all your favorite songs. And then I would choose some of them that were appropriate. Uh, some were so inappropriate. I couldn't so play them in the classroom, <laughs> uh, but I would choose the ones that I could at least play in the classroom. And then I play it and I say, I want you to figure out what is this saying is true. And then ask the question, is that actually true? What is it saying is good? Is that actually good? And so they just had to be able to listen to the song and then jot down, what does this say is true about life? What does it say is good about life? Um, and then ask them the follow-up question, are those things actually true and good? And it's amazing that students actually can be like, oh yeah, it said this is true, but that's not. It says that, you know, if I have money, I'll be happier. It says, you know, the purpose of life is just to have fun. Uh, I don't think that is the purpose of life. And so students can do this really well. It just takes us kind of having our eyes open to what's going on around us we see ads and movies and listen to music and something comes on the radio in the car and be like, Hey, did you notice that? What do you think about that? Um, yeah. it's kind of helping build that discernment. So maybe uh, I have one minute left. And so let me ask a massive question. No, um, <laughs> I just, I want to make this super practical here at the end, as you talk about kind of living faithfully, um, and you address in your book a little bit about just kind of people having a fear of speaking out. And we talked about this at the very beginning of, look, if I'm going to live as a Christian, I'm in the minority. Um, and I'm, might get canceled. I might have uh, something come up against me or it might cause conflict in relationships. So I would just love if you could maybe end with some you know, encouragement. What encouraging words do you have to help people overcome this fear of speaking up about controversial issues and actually living faithfully according to their beliefs? In 30 seconds? Let's see. <laughs> okay, my best 30 second version of that is that we have to reset expectations. We have mm. to understand that this is not going to be easy. Jesus told us that the, the world will hate you. This is what he told his disciples when, when he sent them out. So we need to reset our expectations to understand that we're not doing something wrong because people hate us necessarily, right? If it's the message and it's not you that's being offensive, then Jesus said that would happen. So let's reset our expectation to understand this is what it means to be a Christian. If you're a Christian because it's been comfortable or it makes you feel good or it makes you happy to know that there's an all-loving God out there, well, there's a lot more to it to be a Christ follower than those things. So I think it's conviction that really matters. If you're not totally convicted of the truth of Christianity and that what Jesus said about, hey, this isn't going to be easy. You have to deny yourself and take up your cross and follow me. If you're not totally convicted of the truth of that, get into some apologetics. Start learning what the case is for the truth of Christianity. So you have that conviction. You have the right expectations in place. And then at that point, you gain the courage to speak out because you believe that truth matters and that other people need that truth. Yeah. That was the best 30 second answer. Thank you. Um, honestly, no, it was so good. And, and it just reminds me, we were just chatting about, I just uh, gave a talk on, on the book of Daniel and you look at that and just very quickly, you know, in Daniel chapter one, this is where Daniel decides in his own heart not to defile himself with the king's food. And it turns out positive, right? It ends up working out well. Two chapters later, Daniel chapter three, that's where Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego are able to say, no, I'm not bowing down to the statue, even in the face of the fire. And then you jump down a few more chapters, I think in six, where now Daniel says, I'm going to continue praying, even if it means getting thrown in the lion's den. And this is where there's like, they, it's almost like they saw that they, they tested their faith, so to speak, saw that following God was worth it, even in the face of death, where, they, where when Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego are about to be thrown in the fire, it's like, look, we're, we're going to trust that God saves us. And even if he doesn't, 
Like we're dying for him. Like, and it's like, that's so hard, but we have examples from scripture. We have examples of persecuted Christians around the world where it's like, look, it may get difficult, but really like there is a truth when you understand Christianity, if you see it tested, lived out, this is actually true, then it makes it a little bit easier or gives us more confidence to stand up in the face of that persecution. So Natasha, thanks for uh, working through my big questions and uh, and taking this time and kind of helping uh, encourage those listening of, of understanding these worldview influences around them and being able to address them with some biblical clarity. Thank you. It was great. Thank you. All righty. All right, everybody. Again, there is that book. Go pick up a coffee. Faithfully Different, Natasha Crane, Regaining Biblical Clarity in a Secular Culture. Uh, again, uh, a lot of videos are going to pop up over here to kind of continue to help you think biblically and have that clarity on a lot of different other cultural issues, as well as tons of interviews that are going to be coming up and other videos in the future. I won't have anything next week. I'm on a Maven Immersive Experience to Utah, training Christians to engage Mormons. But after that, I do have stuff coming up. And so with that, I want to thank you for joining us today. Today, if this has been a, a blessing to you, an encouragement to you, like, subscribe, share, do all that kind of fun stuff. Send it out to people who might also benefit from this and continue to think well about God and Christianity because it is worth thinking about. Have a blessed day, everybody, and I will see you next time. I just won't hesitate to follow.